for your word. Thank you, Lord, for its power in showing us Christ and showing us our life and showing us our means to life. And so would you do that this morning? Would you encourage our hearts with the gospel? For those who are here, Lord, who maybe they don't know what to think. Those of us who are here that see this interview with this pastor in check and are hearing about people who are throwing themselves on Jesus' mercy and there's questions. I pray, Lord, that you'd meet those of us with those kinds of questions, with, with the gospel. For those of us who grew up in church with the same gospel, Lord, that we might, that we might be encouraged, that we might uh, be exhorted, that we might be convicted of sin, that we might confess and repent and continually be shaped by this good news. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we honestly don't realize, I think, the deep meaning that's embedded in the stories that we tell, especially the stories that we were told is, you know, that our parents told and that we had and that now we're telling our kids, right? So one quick example, why is the concept of Neverland so ingrained in our collective consciousness, like so attractive? You know, because that's another story that, like, my parents grew up with it, I grew up with it, and now my kids are growing up with the story about Neverland. Why is it so attractive? Well, what do you find in Neverland? The protagonist of Neverland, the hero, is Peter Pan and all of his compatriots. And who are they? Boys that don't want to get older. Peter Pan wants to be a kid forever. Forever, you know. And so, you know, mysteriously, none of the lost boys get any older so long as they're in Neverland. But in the world in which they live, there is a group of people that have aged. They've gotten older. But they're the villains, the pirates. The ones that stopped being kids and, and growing up. They become tyrants, quite opposite of Peter and the Lost Boys. So, you know, Captain Hook is this tyrant, and, he, and he's a tyrant in particular who's terrified of death. He's terrified of death, and so he lives for this world. He's terrified that this ticking time clock of death will catch up to him. Quite literally, right? Because he's constantly being chased by a crocodile, symbolizing death, right? Um, this crocodile has eaten a clock. So the crocodile makes a ticking noise. And this crocodile, by the way, has already taken a piece of him. You know, his hand. It's already had a taste for Captain Hook. And now, you know, if you ever read the book or watch any of the movies, and there's been many, many movies, there's a sense of fatalism, right, on the part of Hook, where he knows that it's just a matter of time before that crocodile gets him. But now, anytime this symbol of death comes near Captain Hook. Anytime he's in any kind of danger, what does he hear? Tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. His whole life is dedicated, therefore, to gaining as much power and control and possessions he can to really bring an end to the idea that death can be avoided. Meanwhile, Peter Pan's entire existence appears to be predicated on the belief that he won't ever age and he shouldn't ever age and that aging is bad, right? So this concept connects to our broader culture in so many ways. We're also in a culture that seeks death avoidance at all costs. We've talked about this a lot specifically when dealing with the scriptural concept of resurrected life. So at Easter, you hear me talk about this, like billions of dollars, all going towards centers for human longevity that seek to make aging a thing of the past. Really, it seeks to make death a thing of the past. One company in particular made a claim in the spring of 2014. I know because 
I preached in 2014 a message that looked back on the same thing. Made a claim in the spring of 2014 that in 10 years, their research would add 10 at the least, maybe even 20 years to human life expectancy. And that's just getting started. After that, it only goes up. Well, since that prediction was made, which we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary, not only has life expectancy not increased 10 to 20 years, not only has it not increased, but it's decreased 2.8 years on average. And yet from the medieval pursuit of alchemy to the modern pursuit of age reversal, what do we, what do we hear? The ticking clock. We hear it getting louder. At moments of our lives, it even takes a piece of us. We end up in the hospital. We're reminded of our mortality. We're desperate to avoid it. And it has the power to turn us either into tyrants who live for this world, who make it all about us, who try to gain as much pleasure as we can while we can, or those who attempt to happily live in the denial of this reality, that maybe we can stay healthy enough for the science to break through and grant me immortality. And yet throughout John's gospel up to this point, what does Jesus do? He turns everything on its head, you know? He's making all these statements that are steeped in controversy. They bring division. But, but ultimately, he's showing them himself, and he's saying, the way that you're inclined to think about things in this world is opposite of the reality of how they actually are and operate. And he continues to do that this morning with the subject of death. All right, so this morning we're going to see three statements about death. Three statements about death in these 16 verses, starting in verse 1. If you have scriptures in front of you, please look there with me. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. All right, so the first statement here is quite controversial. It was quite controversial in Jesus' time, as we'll see, and it continues to be quite controversial today. Death is not the final determiner. Death is not the final determiner. And the reality is that this controversial event, this controversial statement, flows out of an event in Scripture. It flows out of an, an event that the miracle that we're about to read about this week and next week points forward to, but it really even flows out of the event as we see it unfold here in chapter 11. We've talked about this before, but look at verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. The, so now is this transitional word, but it also functions to show something of like historical reportage. Like the author's intent here is to tell us something that happened, like an event that transpired. That's why he's writing the way he writes. So not only does he say, now a certain man was ill, but then he says, it's this specific man, and this is where he's from, and this is his family, and these are known people, and this is kind of the context here. So it's historical reportage in its intent, but that can also be really hard to understand because of the statement that it makes. It can be really hard to understand because, listen, of all the signs that Jesus performs in John's account leading up to the cross... Of all the signs leading up to the cross, to the resurrection, this sign that we see here is really the most dramatic. And because of the nature of the miracle, a lot of people have cast doubt on, on its historicity. They've cast down on, doubt on the now of verse 1. And this uh, 
first-person eyewitness flair that John, that John really writes this with, as though he was someone who was witnessing these events. It casts doubt on the insistence that the author is to be understood as meaning that this happened, that this happened during the life of Jesus. Okay, so some have denied. How have they denied it? Some have simply denied that, this, that supernatural events in and of themselves are possible. So there are times when, and this is how I've described it in the past, but there are times when we open our Bibles to read and we, you know, whether we're at home or whether we're in church or whether we attend a Bible study or if somebody gives us a copy of the gospel according to John to read, a friend gives it to us to read and we're reading it. There are times when we read, and this is true of people who are non-believers, but I think it can also be true of Christians because of the nature of the culture in which we live. We can read and we can immediately have a prejudice. This philosophical prejudice, as we read the text, a prejudice against the nature of the miraculous, the nature of the supernatural, that if something supernatural occurs in the scriptures, our Western enlightenment mindset doesn't allow for that, or we immediately cast suspicion or doubt on it, it's because in our Western enlightenment culture, that mindset gives way to this immediate prejudice. It's a philosophical prejudice against the nature of the miraculous. And so because of that, others probably because that first objection is true for them, think that therefore this must be, since it can't be true in a historic sense, it must be true in an allegorical sense. Like this is the way, John's way of allegorizing one of Jesus' parables, you know, um, essentially he's writing fiction. He's writing a fictional account. Okay, so you know, we're just unable to spend the amount of time needed to treat those kinds of skepticisms or doubts of the text. This morning, but let me offer just a challenge and hopefully an encouragement to those who might begin our time with those kinds of objections rattling around a bit, whether you're a Christian or someone who's here and you, you don't know what you believe about the Bible. If the first objection is your primary objection, let me just say that theism, again, it's not a proof, it's an encouragement to you to, to keep an open mind. Theism, the philosophical argument for the existence of a creator God who's revealed himself to humanity, that is actually quite the position throughout the history of philosophy. There are, there are many, many, many serious theists throughout philosophical history who argue, you can go out and you can pick up a book, Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig, and read um, argument after argument historically for this concept, this idea of theism, that a creator God who's revealed himself to the world exists. And that's not proof that, it's, that God is, is true. That's not what I'm arguing here. But it does mean this is not an unserious position. It's not something you can just wave off. It's not an unserious position. And, and so, therefore, keeping an open mind to it, if it's even possible that an infinite, all-powerful God exists, if that reality is even possible, then certainly the nature of the miraculous is also possible. If that God exists, then God can do as he will. And that's going to be more and more something that's important to understand as we move forward in John. I'll spend a little more time on it for sure around Easter. But again, I just implore you, keep an open mind. Keep an open mind to the nature of the miraculous. Don't buy into this Western Enlightenment, closed-off system, no possibility for God. It's not an unserious position. It's not something we can just wave off. Therefore, these things are possible. So that's all I ask of you. But for those who, who therefore take the next step and you say, well, John must be cleverly writing a fiction account here, an allegory. Let me just echo here that the vast majority of scholars have, have all 
almost unanimously agreed about this point related to the Gospels. They couldn't have been works of fiction, like novels or legends. They read much, much, much differently than that. So don't take my word for it. Here's C.S. Lewis. Lewis writes, as a literary historian, so that's what, what Lewis was, that's what his specialty was at Oxford. As a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends and myths all of my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. He continues, of this text, there are only two possible views. Either one, so he's referring to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One, this is historical reportage, right? On par with all the other historical accounts in ancient history. Or two, some unknown author without historical, without known predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. Right? This is the idea. If it wasn't historical reportage, someone came along. We don't know who they are. They don't have a body of work they flow out of. They don't flow into new authorship. And they suddenly anticipated a technique that would not exist for more than a millennia modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. So Lewis concludes, he says, the reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. What he means is, it's, you haven't read broadly enough. In this time, this is, this is the reality. This is why scholars like George Beasley Murray have concluded this way in their commentary on John. John would have never related a story of Jesus, still less created one, that he didn't have reason to believe took place. So, so he's, note that he's not arguing it serves as some absolute evidence that it did take place, only that the author of this account would have believed it completely. He wasn't writing fiction. He was writing what he believed to be historical reporting. And keep in mind, the whole thing reads like eyewitness account. But whoever this author was, he appears to be present, right? So it's tough to dismiss. Let me just encourage you. You can't really read... John chapter 11, and, and brush it off with the wave of the hand because it seems too incredible, like what we're about to read. You can't just dismiss it. You can't just wave it off. There hasn't been some manuscript, new manuscript discovered in the Judaic wilderness that's like, oh, so that's more allegorical and legendary. No. I have very early, early manuscripts of John's account, and this is the one we have. So um, every narrative begins with a statement of context. That's what's occurring here. Um, historical reportage. Chapter, the events of chapter 10 have ended. We see this attempt to arrest Jesus. We see his successful escape and retreat into Botanea. But in this first section, Jesus hears news of an illness. That's what's happening here. Specifically, it's the illness of one of his friends, Lazarus. And Lazarus has fallen ill in the town of Bethany. This, this is not the same Bethany that we've looked at before. This is a different one, just a couple of miles from Jerusalem. And so we see the friendship. It's really important to understand the closeness, the intimacy. The friendship described in verse 3, Mary and Martha, and we're going to look more at their identity next week, so you might look at some of what this text says about them. I'm going to deal with that more when, when Jesus gets to Bethany. But Mary and Martha send a, a servant to tell Jesus this. The servant says, Lord, that just means sir or even rabbi. It's not a confession of deity or lordship of, of Christ. It just means sir. Lord, he whom you love is ill. And now skip down two verses to verse five. You see another statement of, of this relationship. Now Jesus loved Martha and 
Mary and her sister, Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. So this family and Jesus are close. There's a bond of friendship. There's a bond of love. Lazarus is ill. He's at great risk of death. How does Jesus respond? Verse 4, but when Jesus heard of it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. So Jesus tells them, death is not the final determiner. Because now let's read verse 5 again in connection to verse 6. This is where things really get wild in the text. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Like, think about the grammar of these, because it just makes no sense. Think about the grammar of these two verses. Now Jesus loved them, so therefore, because he loved them, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Like, his staying in the text is directly motivated by his love for them. But that doesn't make sense. Surely the text should read, now, Jesus loved them, so when he heard that he was ill, he packed up a few things quickly and left as quickly as he could, right? He went straight away, as our British friends would say. No, the, the text says the opposite. It says the opposite. And the reason is because Jesus wants Mary and Martha, Lazarus, his disciples, and even the crowd who are watching to be absolutely certain that it was Jesus and not any other thing that was the final determiner in this instance. The final determiner is not death. The final determiner is not any other reality. See, when, we'll talk about this more next week. But you can imagine that it was more common in the first century. So first century, death, you know. It was more common in the first century for people to kind of swoon or pass out in the midst of their illness for their pulse not to be very strong. And so people feel for the pulse. They can't find one. They passed out. They're assumed to be dead. But then all of a sudden, maybe a few hours later, the heart comes back a little bit stronger. The person sits up, right? So you can imagine it was common in the first century. But listen, every now and again, we have stories like this today. Okay, if, if you doubt me, it's like CNN reporting just a few years ago the following headline. Dead Mississippi man begins breathing in embalming room, coroner says. Let me just summarize it. There was no pulse. He was lifeless, you know. The coroner completed his paperwork, placed Walter Williams, whom he had declared dead, into a body bag, zipped him on up, sent him over to the funeral home. And listen to this quote from the people at the funeral home. This is great. We got him into the embalming room, and we noticed his legs beginning to move, like kicking. He also began to do some heavy breathing. Okay, so... Everyone loves being present for an underdog story, right? It's like, I mean, even just this last Thursday night, uh, leadership team is gathering. We, we're dealing with some issues at Gospel Life Church and just the direction and things. And uh, we're doing some trivia. And, and Julie and Beth, they're down by 30 heading into the last round. I mean, there's just no chance. They storm back in the final round. They win by three points, okay? Just, just such a fun thing to be a part of. You know, you want to be present for an underdog story, and look, we're all rooting for Walter Williams, but would you have really wanted to be present for this underdog story? You know, at what point when he starts kicking and like moaning in the body bag, are you like, oh, let's call somebody else to deal with this, right? Um, the point is, though, if this still happens today to any degree at all, which it does, it does. 
And how much more did it happen before the advent of modern medicine? And, and this gave rise to then the popular belief that the soul would actually depart the individual on the third day. That the soul would kind of hang around the body, you know, and this must be the way that it worked. The soul, soul would depart, but it would hang around the body for a couple of days seeking a possible re-entrance into it. But when the body would start to decay on the third day, the soul would recognize this damage is irreparable and would flee, right? So that was the popular belief. Jesus doesn't buy into it at all. But listen, um, he wants to make sure that there are nobody, there's nobody around saying like, well, sure, but it's like the second day. So the soul's still around here somewhere. And so it's impressive, but it's not like super impressive. It's not like a decaying body. It's not like this is someone who stinks at this point in the process, right? He doesn't want any other thing to be seen as that which could have possibly made a determination between death and life. And even more than that, Jesus says, this illness doesn't lead to death. It leads to God's glory. God has the power over it. He has the final, final say. More to be said on that glory in our final point this morning and then into next week's text. But for now, we just see that death is the final determiner. You know, as I said at the outset, this is controversial, this claim. It's controversial in our time. A few years ago, I was watching Larry King interview Stan Lee. Do you know who Stan Lee is? He's this... This old guy who's in all the Marvel movies. You know, he makes all these cameo appearances. He's like the bus driver in one movie and old man crossing the street in another one, right? And so he makes all these appearances because he was the brainchild of Marvel comics. But in any case, both of them, at the time of this interview, Larry King, Stan Lee, upper 80s, early 90s, you know? I can't remember, but both of them were reflecting on death together for just obvious reasons. Each of them would die within just a couple of years after the interview. But as they reflected, both said they didn't believe in any kind of afterlife. They were very clear on that. They believed that this life is all there is. They said no matter how hard they tried, they simply could not wrap their minds around what it will be like for them to experience absolutely nothing forever. That's what they kept talking about. Like, it's so hard for me to understand that I'm going to be experiencing nothing forever, for all eternity, because death was all there was. Death was the final determiner for Larry King and Stan Lee in this interview. But the gospel turns this on its head and says, not only is, the death, not the is death not the final determiner, but there's one greater than death who even has the power over death and will have the final say over all things in this life and the next. And that has massive implications for how we live. There's massive implications for our day-to-day -day lives people in this world, what we believe about our future. And that brings us from first statement, um, now to the second statement, death must not deter our work. Death must not deter our work, starting in verse 7. Then after this, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? So, you know, the, this is a sharp statement from the disciples, but actually, I think it's also understandable. And I, th I don't think this is one of those things where we can read and conclude that we would have done otherwise. Like it really wasn't that long ago that the religious leaders tried to kill Jesus. He just fled arrest in the previous section. The disciples understandably point back to that conflict. They recognize that all this hatred and animosity is growing and building and growing and building. And, and so it could easily result in his death. And while they're concerned for Jesus, they're also concerned for themselves. Because it, 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 you know, the likelihood is... If he dies as a result of this, his followers will also be killed. Okay. 
their lives are also in jeopardy. His death could lead to their death. They don't recognize that his death, though horrible, would not ultimately lead to their death, but actually his death brings them life, but I'm getting ahead of myself. His death's the only thing that can save them, you know. It's at the center of his glory. So how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 9. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. That's the sun, right? But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So what does this mean? Okay, so in days before watches, clocks, accurate timepieces, whether one that was in the home or one that you could wear on your wrist or a phone connected to a satellite, all you had was the daylight. You know, and so the Romans and the Jews divided daylight into a period of 12 hours. That was 12 hours regardless of the season. So those hours would greatly vary in terms of how long or short they were, depending on how long the daylight was. We're experiencing a little little bit of that in Minnesota as we watch our daylight hours continue to shrink, right? But they'd continue to have 12 hours. The 12 hours would be a lot shorter, but it was during those 12 daylight hours that the people did their work. When it got dark, it was time to stop working. So they would work all the way up to sunset. When it was dark, they'd come inside. They'd eat their meal together. They'd tell stories around the table. They'd They'd, they'd read Torah, they'd said, send their children to bed, right? Time to rest your body because the sun will be up soon and it's time to work again and the day would, would start over. Just that natural rhythm of daylight, work, sunset, togetherness and rest that we've really continually strayed from in our culture that, that was present here. Jesus uses that analogy to say, listen, you're right, my hour has not yet come, right? So like, why has Jesus evaded arrest? up to this point. Like, what has he said? He continues to say, like, my hour's not yet come. What's his hour? The hour's the cross. So he's saying, like, you're right, my hour's not yet come. It's not time for me to die yet. We're getting closer to the end of my public ministry, for sure. Like, the sun is setting here. It's late in the day, but there's still light. There's still time before my hour. There's still time before the cross. And just because the cross will come, just because my death will come, night will come, it doesn't mean we just stop working. Like, you just sort of imagine the farmer or the tradesman or whoever like they still have tools out where they were just working or the the pen is open and the animals are grazing and out and they look and the sun's kind of setting and they're like well it's gonna be dark soon i'm just gonna call it a day put put all this back tomorrow like no there's responsibilities there's still work that needs to be done there's responsibilities that are that are to be had and so the disciples likewise are called to work to not quit to not negate their responsibility just because His future death is a reality. There's still work to be done. If you remember, Jesus said something similar in chapter 9, verse 4. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work, right? So there would come a point when Jesus' departure would drive the disciples in confusion and fear to an upper room where they're in, in fear for their lives. They hide together. It would drive Peter to deny Jesus three times. His spirit would then come and enable a powerful witness to his resurrection. But they're still here in this moment where they're walking with Jesus in his earthly ministry. And just because Jesus knows that moment will come to an end, just because the disciples know that if they get too close to Jerusalem, it very well could come to an end, that Jesus would die, it doesn't mean they should sit things out in futility. It doesn't mean they should just say, well, I guess we're done. Jesus is telling them, and this is our second statement, 
death must not deter our work. And look, listen, this is important and it's valuable. I'm reading this, this book, The Glorious Cause. It's like Oxford University. It's the first book in the Oxford University series on American history. And this one's The American Revolution. And the author does a really good job of talking about how this concept, you know, it was true in a unique way of people throughout history, specifically those who are part of the American Revolution, where they lived in a way where there was this implicit belief that though death was a reality, there was this creator God who was the final determiner. And because of this belief that death wasn't the final determiner, it was absolutely unheard of that people should just abandon their culture because, or their, abandon their callings that they've been given, their specific tasks, their work to be done, just because death is on the way, right? Death is coming, but there's this greater meaning, and so we, we don't quit. We, we live out our callings all the way up to the moment of death, right? There was, it was just ingrained in the culture. It's different now. Like, you can see how a worldview in which this life is all there is, in which death is the final determiner. You can see how that, that might be something that could cause you to cling to life. This life is all there is. So you cling to that life in a way that abandons all responsibilities of life. Out of fear. Out of realizing that the time could come at any moment. You abandon. You know, like, we abandon it. Maybe in, in favor of overcaution or pleasure-seeking, you know? We can see how it would lead to versions of agoraphobia in which we lock ourselves away in safe spaces, free of all danger and disease. We could see how also it would lead to those who would see this life only as a place where they might find temporary pleasure. And, and since this life is all there is, and th therefore they should gorge themselves on the sensory delights of this world. You can see how people might see death is coming, so they just quit. Right? They quit in either of these ways. They quit by either locking themselves away and kind of awaiting the moment, or they quit by abandoning responsibility and just making this all about pleasure. The irony of this is that in seeking these things, it's actually far more dangerous and far less satisfying. Right? We think it's, it's like keeping us safe. To protect and pre to, to use my life as a means to, at all costs, protect and preserve my life, this life, that that's what life is all about. But it's actually far more dangerous because there are eternal ramifications, right? It's far more dangerous. We think that there's pleasure to be had now, so let's have as much pleasure until death comes, but it's actually, it does not even come close to bringing the true pleasure or joy that Jesus holds out to you. So the gospel comes and turns it on its head. Yes, short of the return of Christ in our age, we will all die in this life. But not only is death not the final determiner for the Christian, for those who believe. And not only must it not deter our work, but precisely because it's not the final determiner, we can work now without fear and with hearts that are full of faith. Knowing that, this is not the end for those who believe. So look, the, the sun is not set, and we don't know when the, the sun of our lives will be set. So while we have light, while we have life, while we're here on this side of eternity, we, we do this work of gospel proclamation because there are those who do not know Jesus. We do this work of go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, and there is work to be done. And so we do this work according to our callings all the way up to death. Full of faith knowing death is not the final determiner, and therefore it must not deter our work. And that's because finally, look, 
This is how do we do it? With this realization that the death of Jesus leads to life. And this is something we see this week at the tail end of the message and then really becomes the central theme of next week's message, right? So look at verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Okay. Jesus tells the disciples, Lazarus is asleep, right? But then he says, I go to awaken him. And I want you to notice like the contrast between the plural, our friends in the text, and the singular, I go. And we might think, well, that's just sloppy writing or sloppy recording because, you know, you're supposed to keep this the same. You're supposed to keep the person that says, should read something more like, our friend is Lazarus, Lazarus falling asleep, but we go. We go now. But no, this is very intentional. It's not sloppy. It's not accidental. Lazarus may well be friend to them all, but only Jesus is the resurrection and the life, as we'll see next week. Only he's the final determiner. It's only his work that can bring Lazarus from death to life. The disciples don't understand the idiom, though, that Jesus is using, and we might initially not understand how they could miss it. In fact, there have been many who've said, oh, this is one of the reasons why, you know, it can't be true, because the disciples during this time would have totally known that this is what Jesus was talking about. It's a very common idiom, and the way they miss it here is just, maybe it's made up. No, no, listen, I don't think so. In their defense, Jesus doesn't just say Lazarus has fallen asleep. Like, if he had come to them and he had said, guys, I've got some news I need to share with you. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I think then they would have known, right? It's not like then they would have been like, whoa, why, why, is the, why are you telling me that he's sleeping, you know? Do you do this for all of us? You know? um, I don't think that's what's happening. He doesn't just say that. He says, Lazarus has fallen asleep and... Now I go to wake him up, right? And this is the sticking point. Listen, there was simply nothing in first century Jewish worldview that would lead someone to think that resurrection in this life was possible, right? So we're going to talk more about it as we get closer to Jesus' own resurrection and even look at it more next week because this is one of the many reasons why Jesus' resurrection simply couldn't have been a story that the disciples would have come up with or lied about. We have no belief at all in the first century of a dying, much less rising Messiah. The concept of Jewish resurrection, and, and, and one of the sisters of Lazarus will tell us this in the text next week. It was a future resurrection, a future event at the very end of time. And so in the Old Testament, the idiom of sleep, meaning death, was kind of seen in this formula of so-and-so slept with their fathers, you know, so-and-so went and slept with his fathers, right? It's talking about their death. But this was a kind of sleep from which people didn't wake up. Yeah, the text didn't say it. And then they woke up again. Right, so it makes sense that the disciples would think, okay, well, he says he's asleep. Then he said he's going down to wake him. So we can't be talking about that kind of sleep. He's not talking about death. He's talking about waking him up. Right? So Jesus then tells them plainly, you know, guys, he's dead. And he expresses exactly what happened, what he expressed above, what he expressed earlier. He's glad that he wasn't there. He's glad for their sake. He's glad. He's motivated out of love. He's motivated out of love for, we've seen now, Lazarus, for Mary, for Martha, for his disciples. We'll see even for the crowd next week. He's glad. 
he wasn't there. Why? So that they may believe. So they might believe. Believe what? John wants his readers to understand. And guys, verse 12, it's just such a, it is a sweet verse. It's a sweet verse. Uh, Verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The Christian should read that and have their hearts just injected with, with hope. Because look, John wants his readers to see this, like to understand that those who belong to Jesus, those who are called friends by Jesus and fall asleep, those who are loved by Jesus and slip away in death, will one day be lovingly awakened by him in resurrected life. Those of us who have friends who have passed on, family who have passed on, and they know Christ, the day is coming. I mean, they're in eternity with Christ now. To be absent from the body is present with the Lord. They're in his presence and glory, but the day is coming in which Jesus will lovingly awaken them again to resurrected life here. There is future hope for us. That's exactly what we see in verse 11, and it's exactly what we'll see in our life. It's the kind of life he holds out, and the only means, again, ironically, that this resurrected life can occur is through Jesus' path to death, to the cross, which is an event that Jesus gets closer to by way of this miracle. You know, there's irony in that too, that in this, in this like quest to bring a dead friend back to life, Jesus gets closer to his own death. He gets closer to Jerusalem. He takes another step toward the cross. Because that cross is the means by which his, his friend might have ultimate life, you know? And so Thomas's response at the end, this is one we can read, and instead of shaking our head at it, we can say, well, two things are probably true. Three things. Three things are probably true. That statement that Thomas gives us contains, like, some courage. It also contains some massive under, misunderstanding but it also speaks a little bit better than he realizes in ways that bear this out, that that the death of Jesus is what leads us to life. Because look, look, he believes that following Jesus and the height of this animosity toward him could lead to all of their deaths, and in a very real sense, that is true. Nevertheless, he's committed to following him. And so there is some courage to be seen there, but he's misunderstood the assurance that Jesus provides in the passage. He thinks Jesus' death leads to ultimate death for him. He's missed the continued allusion to the death that Jesus would face as the Lamb of God who would cover sin, who would make it possible for him to have resurrected life. So there is some misunderstanding, but we can also say finally that Thomas speaks better than he knows because there's a sense in which the disciples would be called, that Thomas, that Peter, that John, that James, that all these disciples would be called to lay down their very lives for the gospel, to take up their cross and follow him. You know, the culture says that we find ourselves by looking inward, a process of self-realization in which we follow our hearts. We don't, we realize ourselves. We find life by realizing self, self self-realization. After all, given that this life is all there is, you know, that death is the final determiner, and we all know it goes by fast, Listening to your heart and following it becomes all the more urgent. And let me tell you, that's the kind of stories that this culture is crafting for our children, for us. It's the kind of storytelling we see. But the gospel turns this on its head and says, we don't find life through self-realization. We find it in self-denial. It's Jesus' death that brings life. Take up your cross and follow him. Why? Because he's 
the resurrection and the life. And, and, and so in a culture in which there's so much confusion abounding related to death, and that really does affect the way we live. It affects the way we work. It affects the way we see vocation and calling. It affects the way we see ministry in the life of the church. It affects the way we evangelize. It affects the degree to which we share the gospel. Like that, what we believe about our future affects so much, and there's so much confusion abounding. Graciously, by God's grace, his spirit gives us like statement after statement after statement in this gospel about how Jesus transforms the way we think about death. He's the one who has final say over it. Therefore, it should not hold us back from moving forward in all of our callings. In the sharing of the gospel, there's still work to be done. There's still seeds to be planted. All of this, not out of law, not out of rigorous, like, what's wrong with you if you don't do this, but out of joy, because Jesus' death has given us life, because one day we see that as friends of Christ, he will mercifully come and wake us, though we've, we've died. We have this future hope that nothing can take from us. And so we see his death on display, and every time we see his death on display in the Gospels, we have hope. And, and where do we see the death on display weekly? We see the death, his death on display at, at the Lord's table, and actually precisely what we talked about this morning is what the Lord's table does. It puts the death of Christ on display, the death of Jesus leads to life, so that we come and we remember together this death, his body broken and his blood shed, so that we can go. Like we come together, we hear of this death proclaimed, we remember it together, we gather and we do that, then we scatter throughout the week, able to live according to our callings because of that death. So I want to invite you, if you're a believer in Jesus, come and take the elements. If you're not a believer, the mercies of Christ are very present. They're held out to you. He desires for you to know him. He desires for you to call out to him. So make this your first proclamation of his death to the body of Christ. So I want to invite you forward to take these elements with you back to your seats and we'll partake together in a moment.